welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay Sequatmec territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequatmecoulou. And today's text, The Pigman, takes place in Staten Island, New York, the traditional land of the Muncie Lenape peoples. Mm-hmm. And Joe, it's yeah. time for another band book episode. We're into Indeed. our classic band book section now. Yes, and I will confess that I definitely felt the classicness of this text because. Uh, yeah, it just kind of seeps through in the writing style and even some of the approaches like this felt like Judy Bloom. This felt like a tree grows in Brooklyn. It was definitely like, oh, yeah, this is published in the 60s. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely so Pigman comes out in 1968. Paul Zindel already had a reputation as a playwright when this book came out. Right. And it's definitely one of the landmark texts in terms of you know, pushing the genre of YA, whether you want to accept it as a genre or not, but pushing Mm -hmm. it into a more realistic direction, um, notable for sort of like authentic teenage slang, even though it feels pretty weird now. Oh, sure. Unlike something like Catcher in the Rye, this was created specifically for a young adult audience. And I think it was pretty rare to see such family dysfunction Mm. on the page in a book targeted at young people in 1968. I will say that one of the things that drew me to the Pig Band for Band Book Club, and I think I alluded to this earlier, Paul Zandel is a huge influence on A.S. King. And I was, I wanted to ask you if you could see the lines there, even if you didn't relate to Pig Man. That is hilarious because I definitely remember you alluded that he was a significant figure and had been influential And when I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, this does remind me of that A.S. King book that we read, (laughs) but you had never actually drawn the connection between the two. So, uh, yeah, I can definitely see it. Yeah, that sort of like kind of weird moment of your youth that gets Mm -hmm. blown into the defining moment of your youth, I think is a really sort of, it's a line that connects the two of them for sure. Yeah. Should I uh, get into what the book's about and then maybe talk about why it got banned? Yes, absolutely. Um, Maybe we'll just take a quick moment to acknowledge that we, of course, are joined by voices of listeners in Mm -hmm. this. So we did get responses from both Victoria as well as Tea Books and Chocolate and Brian. So we will be incorporating their thoughts into the episode as well. Yay, excellent. We love hearing from you. And I know with the older text, sometimes it's hard to, you know, want to pick up something that might feel a little bit distant. Mm -hmm. And as... Tea Books and Chocolate and Victoria both pointed out in their responses, there are aspects of this that are hard to get over. And I will be very frank that I did Mm -hmm. not remember that it was so laden with the R word slur. And indeed, on the very first page, it's like there. Mm -hmm. I mean, in this case, I think we really can say a product of the time, right? We weren't willing to give John Green that out when we read it infinite times in Paper Towns, but maybe in 1968 we can. Yeah, or Amanda Brown last week, which I realized we neglected to address like in a 2001 novel right there and then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is wild when you see how far we haven't come in some of these ways. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The other thing that is prevalent in this book is uh, family dysfunction, but particularly yeah. around alcohol abuse mm-hmm. and fat phobia. Like, there's a lot of fat shaming in this book, like a disturbing amount. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on how that connects to John's character, and I was happy to... I guess go on a journey with how I felt about him because initially I was just like, oh, cool. It's a teen boy character that I absolutely despise. <laughs> we never do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a rare artifact for our show. <laughs> okay, so Brenna, what is the pig man about? Okay, so you find out right at the beginning of the book that this is a memorial project that two characters, John and Lorraine, are writing about a man who has died named Mr. Pignati. So Mm -hmm. you learn that right at the opening of the book. The story goes on to explain how these two teenagers came to befriend this old man and eventually like really deeply betray him one of what I think is one of the most upsetting scenes in um, YA. So... Mm -hmm. As I said, our main characters are John and Lorraine, John Conlon and Lorraine Jensen. They are both high school sophomores. They are both sort of kind of outcasts, or at least they don't love to run with the school crowd. I think John is more of a sort of outcast than Lorraine necessarily is, but yeah. Yeah, but he plays the game. The difference is that Lorraine doesn't make any efforts to connect with people, whereas John would be like, I'm personable. I'll get beers and drink with you in the cemetery. But he really doesn't actually like anybody but Lorraine, it seems. Yes, that's true. And there is a sense of like that very classic teenage, no one understands me vibe (laughs) coming off of both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two of them get involved in making prank phone calls. (laughs) yes they do the goal is to see who can keep a stranger on the phone the longest i kind of love this because prank phone calls don't exist anymore really no no they were fun i used to make a lot of prank phone calls to 1-800 numbers i really enjoyed Uh, it it was always really fun with your bad self i know right there's always (laughs) some kid who talks you into doing it but it's good fun anyway all this to say one of the people that they call up is a man named mr pignati And Lorraine keeps him on the phone for a long time by telling him that um, she is calling from a charity and he agrees to donate money. And so John convinces Lorraine to go to Mr. Pignati's house. This is, of course, in the days when, like, your full address just right there in the phone book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So they go to his house and they befriend him over a series of very strange scenes. What we realize is that Mr. Pignati, who they call the pig man, because obviously his name, and also he collects pig figurines. Yes, I love that little (laughs) addition, because initially I just thought, oh, okay, where they're not being very clever children who are just abbreviating his last name, but then he actually has a whole (laughs) collection. (laughs) They're fun, too. Um, I love love Mr. Pignani, but he's deeply lonely. His wife has died. He's such a tragic character. Oh my gosh. He is, and you can really tell that he's just so delighted that these two kids are taking interest in him. He Taking advantage of him. Yeah, I know. I know. And that's what's so sad, right, is that he just wants their friendship. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Lorraine and John have maybe different motivations. Lorraine feels fairly guilty for what they're doing. John at yeah. least says that he doesn't. But they're both still really taking advantage of him. They play in his house. He buys them things. They go on mm-hmm. trips to the zoo together where they meet the pigman's best friend, who is an ape. Mm-hmm. And this is all going along, you know, fairly well until uh, Mr. Pignati has a heart attack and goes to the hospital. And while he is gone, 
Oh, boy. A number of events happen in Mr. Pignatti's house, including John and Lorraine share a kiss and then don't deal with the fact that they've kissed and Mm-mm. instead throw a rager of a party in Mr. Pignatti's house Yeah, and destroy many of Conchetta's things, as well as some of the pigs. Oh, Conchetta is his dead wife, who we have only just recently learned is actually deceased because they initially believe that she has just gone on vacation, even though it's very, very obvious to everyone that she is in fact actually dead. Yes, so he tells everyone she's on a trip with friends in California, but of course the house is very, very run down. It's very, very lacking, like, love and attention Mm -hmm. and his loneliness would also speak and there's a brief moment where Lorraine thinks maybe he killed Conchetta but they they put that aside and recognize (laughs) that this is just a sad lonely old man yeah anyway he is released from the hospital and returns to his house to find it full of teenagers and ransacked Yeah. yeah totally destroyed and he is absolutely devastated He doesn't press charges against them, but he doesn't speak to them either. And the police let them know that Mr. Pignati was was weeping. And so they feel like terribly guilty. Yeah. Yeah. And so they try to convince Mr. Pignati to speak to them. They end up um, inviting him to the zoo to visit Bobo. His, I guess he's a baboon. He's a baboon. Yeah. Right. To visit his baboon friend. And then, of course... When I was reading the book, so Joe, I was like, please call ahead and make sure he's okay. Please right? call ahead and make sure. <laughs> because the whole time that Mr. Pignati was in the hospital, he was saying, can you please go and check on Bobo and make sure that he's being fed, even though like you're absolutely not supposed to feed animals in the zoo, but just like peanuts that you buy. But whatever. Um, and they That's absolutely the do not. They they keep saying, oh, sure. Yeah, we're going to do it. But they're they teenagers, so they don't. And then, yeah, it turns out that Bobo has died in the interim. So they show up expecting to have this thing where they're going to repair their relationship with Mr. Pignati. No. And instead, he discovers Bobo is dead. And then he just dies. Yep. It's terrible. <laughs> it's really setting and that's the end of the book that's the end of the book it's like it it's so abrupt Brenna yeah so one of the things that Brian messaged me about was he doesn't actually feel like the framing device of them writing this memorial project is all that effective because it works in the beginning to introduce who they are and the alternating chapter structure but it's completely forgotten at the end because the end is so abrupt yeah I totally agree. The end is is really, really abrupt. And I I think something that upsets me about the structure of the book is that, I mean, Mr. Pignati was only ever a device to show us the character growth of John in particular. Mm -hmm. But he just feels so thrown away at the end of this book. And I think, too... I mean, there's a level at which it's like, okay, this is kind of a brave thing. Like, there's no resolution here. Like, John and Lorraine do not get to feel better about what they've done. There's no moment where Pignati is like, well, at least you brought me joy while I was alive. No, Mm -mm. none of that. Mm -mm. (laughs) No, there's no closure and there's no getting off the hook for them, which I really appreciate. But it's challenging because the whole book is written from their perspective. So we are really getting an insight into how they're feeling. And as a result, how we ultimately end up feeling and to end it so abruptly also, I mean, yes, it's great in terms of what it does to John and Lorraine because it doesn't let them off the hook, but it also then doesn't let us, the audience off the hook. And that's a terrible place to end. Yes. 
Correct. Oh, Paul Zendel, why are you so mean? He's a mean, mean man. <laughs> and it's funny, Joe, because the responses that we got were really polarized, right? We got mm-hmm. one response that was like, you know, found it difficult at first, but like ended up really connecting. And the other book was like, Mar- no, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of, I think maybe you and me as well, how we're responding to it. Yeah. But one thing to just just kind of tie into the ending as we're talking about it here in tea books and chocolates response she does agree with us she says i also felt like the pacing didn't work for me i kept Mm. waiting for the climax of the story but it never really hit for me like the party aftermath and the reconciliation with mr pignani felt like not enough i expected something bigger or i wanted something bigger Mm. i'm gonna tag on to that last part i think we all want something bigger Uh uh-huh because that lack of resolution is actually really hard to sit with in this mm-hmm. book it just really really is well i think also there's something about the rising action where we know that the party the interesting thing about this book and i don't know if it's because we have the hindsight of all these years and the way that so many other stories adopt similar formats but we know exactly what's going to happen this is going to end badly it's going to end badly as soon as they say, oh, it's a party and we're only inviting a couple of people, you know, the bells go off in your head and you mm-hmm. just think, no, it absolutely is not. So there's all of that anticipation, but it still doesn't ultimately feel like rising action to climax. Like you keep thinking that there's going to be more or that these three characters are going to have to sort it out. And then it just ends so abruptly that you think, oh, OK, no, yeah, that was what we thought it was. We <sighs> just didn't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um it's a frustrating read from that perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. we can see and I'm gonna speak specifically about John here. We okay. see the potential in John to grow into that character, but we don't oh. get there with him, right? Mm. And I think for me, I think that's one of the great frustrations. Like we see glimpses and in Victoria's uh response that they sent in, they they make a note of like I applaud Paul Zendel for creating vulnerability and growth within John. Um, And they give a quote in chapter five where we have this kind of metatextual moment where John is saying like, like, what does Lorraine want from me? Did she want me to tell the truth all the time to run around saying it did matter to me that I live in a world where you can just grow old and be alone and have to get down on your hands and knees and beg for friends? Like, Mm. there is that self-reflective capacity in John. Yeah. But because we never get to see him resolve anything with Mr. Pignati, and we don't actually even get like an emotional sort of climax after the death, we're just kind of left hanging. And there are two more books, I should say, or I think there's one more book and one memoir that is organized around this book, if I'm not Mm, mistaken. Okay. But because we don't get that payoff, it's like, oh, (laughs) No, there's a bit of a letdown. Yeah, to the point that I wonder if there even was plans for that sequel until people said, no, where's the rest of the story? You can't just end it like this. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder that too. I really do. It seems, um, I don't even know what the word for it is. Because distance aside and like the age bracket of the text making it maybe difficult to connect with, like all of that aside. Mm-hmm. Zindel is really good at creating these characters that we care about, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We care about John and Lorraine and Mr. Pignati. I almost wonder if, you know, many of the tropes of YA that we're used to haven't come into place yet. And something mm-hmm. you and I talk about a lot is like when we get too much adult, 
versus when there's not enough adult. Right. And this is definitely a book where there's almost not enough adult. Like, mm-hmm. we needed a bit more of Mr. Pignati, I think, in order to resolve the depth of character that is set up in the first part of the book. Or at least that's how I feel. Oh, that is a tricky statement. Yeah, because part of me doesn't want that. If anything, I just want, you know, an extra chapter. I want an epilogue or something that gives me a bit of sense of how does this impact John and Lorraine's life moving forward? Mm. I appreciate that Halls and Dell deliberately did not give that to us. Like, I don't for a second think that he just said, oh, okay, well, I'm done with this book. I'm going to move on. Like, <laughs> this is very calculated. But, you know, I think that's why we're we're agonizing over it, because it is mm-hmm. so frustrating. It is so challenging. And it's like, oh, I can't believe you've done this to us. But I don't know that having more adults, like, I don't want to see more of Lorraine's interactions with her absolutely horrid mother, who no. I also understand completely. Yes. Or John's <laughs> parents, who no. sound horrible. But also, I understand them. <laughs> I think that is what I struggle with with this book. You know, I I found the storytelling very simplistic, but all of the characters are so real and relatable. And that's my push and pull is I was like, well, it's kind of predictable and it's a little simple and it ends really abruptly, but also it's really well written. And these characters mm-hmm. are so lifelike to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I don't think all of that is time passing, but I think a fair amount of it is, right? Like, mm. just the genre conventions are really different. Like, you, as you said off the top, this feels kind of Judy Bloom-y, and I, yeah. I felt that too. Like, it feels very much like I'm sort of in a different moment. It didn't hurt that the library copy that I got out is very clearly, like, the same kind of school copy that I would have had in, like... 1992 like it's you know really one of those tiny paperbacks with the Mm -hmm. i'm holding it up now with like the smelly (laughs) yellow pages you know okay mine was contemporary classic it's got brand new art uh like a pig ceramic on the cover with a kind of like fun escapist font and i just thought oh this is not inaccurate (laughs) but also makes it seem like the book should have been written yeah in the 2000s Oh, funny. It's interesting to me that you have an edition that looks like that and that they did not update the language. That's interesting. Yeah, I I will say one of the other reasons that I struggled so much with the ending, and I promise, folks, after this, we'll leave it behind. Well, sort of. (laughs) Brian has another comment I want to bring up. (laughs) The reason I struggled is because it actually has, uh, you know, a brief interview with Paul Zindel about what the book meant to him. It has Mm. reading group questions so that if you read this with other people or as a teenager you could use the prompts to reflect on certain passages and parts of the books and so on so there were about 15 extra pages at the end so i get to the last page of the book flip it expecting to have more and all of a sudden it's like more about the big man in interview with paul zindel and i felt like i'd been slapped in the face (laughs) yeah i think this is not the first time this has happened to us. I really Mm-mm. think that we need to talk about, <laughs> like, make those reader guide pages, like, give them, like, a gray edge so you yeah, can see where I they're need coming. a different color. Do I need something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was confronting, let me tell you. Because this is a super fast read, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I read mm-hmm. it in a couple of days. So I was cruising, and then all of a sudden, bam. 
But maybe to bring it back to Brian, because I think it'll open up new avenues and maybe allow us to introduce some of Victoria's and also more OT books and chocolate slots. Mm -hmm. So Brian mentions that the end hit him in a way that he wasn't expecting. The sudden thesis of sorts about trespassing in childhood as an adult or trespassing in adulthood as a child Mm -hmm. and being locked out of childhood forever as a result gave him a big wow moment and i thought that idea of trespassing into a world that's either too young or too old for you it really unlocks something in my understanding of the book because i realize the entire foundational relationship between john and lorraine and the big men is like they are doing things with someone that they shouldn't and entering into a whole different world right like it's all escapist mm-hmm. oh that's really interesting because it, it gives you a different way to read to the sort of playing at husband and wife that lorraine and john oh, are doing in the house as well right yes 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 oh it's interesting you know because i I find those scenes very stressful <laughs> to say. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, one, because they shouldn't be in the house. No. <laughs> it's upsetting. I mean, these kids have the key to the house, but it is not intended to be a playhouse or something no. where they can just go and do dress up. And yes, play man and wife where Lorraine cooks John a meal as she is dressed in the pig man's dead wife's clothes. It's just, oh man. The reality of they don't understand how much they're overstepping the boundaries is just Mm -hmm. so evident to us as readers. And how obvious is it that John and Lorraine are reenacting the toxic family patterns that they've come from in those scenes? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, John is so cruel. And, you know, Lorraine is trying to please him, but ultimately coming to realize that that's going to be futile. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, you two, please stop it. Yeah, they've just internalized the relationships that they have experienced as children watching their parents. And I beg you to go to therapy, both of you. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, so we haven't actually talked about why the book was banned yet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is it as simple as, oh, the children are drinking and they're being hoodlums and they're responsible inadvertently for this man's death? But also, is it because... This seems like a really negative depiction of like what it means to be an American working class individual. It's interesting because the book was straight out banned in Plano, Texas. That's where the first, I think, major banning came from, although it's been contested in a lot of schools over time. Okay. And it's typically contested over language. Oh, okay. Which I didn't see coming either, but let Hmm. me... Let me share with you some of the words that one of the parents in Plano, Texas had a problem with in this book. Joe, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. And this, by the way, this is from a, a banning in the 2000s. Okay. So this is oh, not. Okay. I thought you were going to say 1960 something. <laughs> no, no. So here okay. are some of the words that they didn't like raunchiest, <laughs> excruciating. What? Subliminally. Oh. This parent said, these are strange words that imply ugly things. Oh, okay. Which is to say, Joe, I think you might be right, right? Like, the easy thing for them to pick on is language, which apparently we're not allowed to say excruciating. Oh, it's excruciating. (laughs) Yeah, of course that denotes something negative. But also, how many books have we read that feature that word? Well, seriously. 
But this idea of being opposed to strange words implying ugly things, I mean, really, that's like, that's objecting to art as a concept, is it not? Yeah. Oh, boy. But that obviously worked because you said it was banned. Yeah, it was. Yeah, in Plano, Texas, the Parental Rights Council has labeled the Pigman a bad book. (laughs) <laughs> a very bad book. <laughs> a dare you book. Now, in other areas, um, the sexual themes have been the the reason for banning or for contesting anyway, or trying to block it from middle grade readers in particular. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is like, yeah, you're right, Joe, there is a social satire happening here. It doesn't seem to be bothering anyone. Sometimes I think the banned book audience, like... <laughs> They are, they are mysteries to us, aren't they? Like, there's easy pickings, there's low hanging fruit right there, folks. And you want to go after the word excruciating? Okay. Subliminally is such a rude word. Yeah, like I was reading this and I thought that frankly, considering the time frame that was being written in, I thought that Paul Zendel was being radical with his takedown of the nuclear family. <laughs> Yeah, because there are no good families in this Mm -hmm. book, right? Mm -hmm. None. Mm -hmm. To the point that, you know, I want to circle back to something Victoria wrote in their email. They noted that, I love this, Angelo Pignati is one of the most tragic bleeping characters in young adult literature I have ever read. Yes. Yes. Hard agree, Victoria. And one of the things is that we learn so little about him, right? Because Lorraine and John are not curious about the same things that we would be curious about. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. do he and Conchetta have children? Right. Are they estranged from children? Did that, like, there's all this stuff about, like, what is his life Mm -hmm. that I'm so curious about specifically because all the other families in the book are deeply dysfunctional, like, painful constructions of the family unit, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and money is such a pressing issue for both John and Lorraine's families, right? It's all about working to get by and being able to basically cover your buds. And I think that's one of the reasons why John and Lorraine are so fascinated by the pigman, because he just seems to have money. But we don't know how he made that money. Are they actually bilking him dry and he's living on mm-hmm. some kind of pension or a fixed income? Like, as an adult, I read this and think, I have so many questions about Mr. Yes. Pignotti. Yes. We're never going to get them answered. <laughs> it's interesting because in some ways that lack of detail gives us space like in victoria's email they wrote i have a theory that the pig Mm -hmm. collection started with the pig he received from his wife only to have that collection grow in an attempt to recapture his wife after she died it's like oh (laughs) that just broke my heart a little bit more (laughs) no but you know because john and lorraine are so ultimately incurious about the pig man Mm -hmm. we do have this space to fill in these other bits and yeah if your if your brain is being really mean to you you can make it even more tragic if you want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I do ultimately agree with Victoria when they write, this character deserved a lot better than to endure two heart attacks, have his house trashed, and to die at the feet of a baboon's cage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hard agree. I'm interested because, I mean, Victoria rightfully goes into hypothesis to try to imagine what are we missing in Mr. Pignotti's backstory. But 
there's got to be something like there's got to be something Freudian or symbolic about that relationship with the baboon, right? Because it feels that to me was almost the most 60s-esque element of it. Mm -hmm. Like, here's this poor man, this poor widower who has formed an unhealthy attachment with a baboon. Is it just that that's how his loneliness has manifested? Or is it is he looking for someone to take care of? And Mm. what ends up happening is the baboon gets replaced by John and Lorraine because they can be surrogate children. Oh, that's interesting. But I don't think the baboon does get replaced for him, right? Because the baboon only Mm. stops getting his attention because he goes to the hospital. Like he's still going to the zoo even without them to check on Bobo. But I do, I do think there is this desire to nurture that, that he represents and you know we can see that every time the children are mistaken for his grandchildren and he's pleased right they can Mm -hmm. see on his face that he's pleased and lorraine still corrects people right right oh no 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 no. that's not that's not my grandfather but pignani really likes it when people make that mistake so it's very clear that it's not just loneliness and anybody is filling it it's it's wanting to care for someone to nurture someone Mm mm-hmm which makes him even more tragic. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. So maybe can we wrap up our conversation by talking a little bit about sex and gender? And, yeah. and more so gender, like the construction of masculinity and femininity. Because oh, yeah. I do think that obviously John is a very interesting character in that regard and the kind of the posturing that he exudes in terms of the way he treats both Lorraine, but also Norton, the guy that he doesn't like very much that he drinks beers with in the cemetery. And yes, how he's trying to emulate his father, even as much as he hates him. I love Mm -hmm. the fact that he refers to call his father, father, he just refers to him by his name. (laughs) (laughs) But then I really want to hear your thoughts about Lorraine's relationship with her mother, because I do think that this is, maybe the most challenging aspect of the book for me because I so understand her mother and yet I bristled at every interaction they have. So Joe's alluding to the fact that Lorraine's mother is not just strict, although she is strict. She's mm-hmm. particularly obsessed with the idea that Lorraine is is having sex, really, that Lorraine is carrying on with boys. She's mm-hmm. obsessed <laughs> with oh that gosh. idea. And, you know, if Lorraine is 10 minutes home late, then that's what she assumes she's been up to. And this is a woman who has obviously been deeply hurt by Mm -hmm. men, particularly by Lorraine's father, who just decided to wander off and start a new family franchise. So, you know, there's a lot of distrust there. And I think, I don't know if that's what you're getting at when you say you understand her, Joe, but that's, that's for me. Her mistrust is obviously really well placed. She's been terribly hurt. Mm-hmm. And also, she is breaking this young woman. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Like, talk about a way to drive away your teenage daughter, just in every regard. Like, Lorraine feels bad about lying to her mother about what she's doing, but what other option does she have? Yeah, there is no middle ground with her mother, right? You know, mm-hmm. it was interesting because Tea Books and Chocolate pointed out a very tender scene that I had... Uh, I don't know if I'm just so ungenerous towards Lorraine's mother that I didn't notice (laughs) it. Maybe. I certainly didn't describe it as tender myself, but in this note, Tea Books and Chocolate writes, "Uh, Honestly, the most touching moment for me was Lorraine and her mother's conversation after she gets brought home by the police officers. Mm. After all her mother's poking and prodding and emotional abuse, you see how clearly she loves her daughter, how worn down she is by her life, and it felt very tender to me. 
That's so interesting because yeah, I did I, not I agree, have that and then I flip back on it because I'm just like, nope, but I still kind of hate you. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think for me, the tenderness of that, I guess, is undercut by the fact that, like, when the pigman dies, John sends Lorraine away because if she gets brought home by the police again, her mother's going to beat her, right? And mm-hmm. that's like they talk about that openly. So it's interesting because. You know, we, we are so often in YA confronted with parents who do not have the resources, whether emotional, financial, whatever, to actually parent. And I think that's what we're seeing with Lorraine's mother, right? Mm-hmm. She has no time. She has no money. She steals no. their food from dying people. Oh, my gosh. She's a hospice nurse, if you haven't read the book, by the way. She's like, It's just kind of a double whammy in that regard. Yeah, she takes food out of the pantries of, of people and she's caring for them. Mm-hmm. And you want to, or at least I want to empathize with that woman, but then I see the way she takes out her rage, frustration, exhaustion on her daughter and my empathy mm-hmm. dries up pretty fast. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was interesting, and I didn't even realize it until we began this conversation, is that she feels like a prototype for Dill's mother, in the serpent king which we talked about on book club last year but it's the same kind of harried medical worker just absolutely breaking their own backs trying to make ends meet to care for their child but in the process ends up creating this just so toxic relationship where it manifests as you need to do more you're not good enough and it's rough it's so rough totally agree i totally agree and it's you know, tragic too, because much like Dill's mother can't see an escape from the life that she's chosen, and you know, she has the, all these constraints of religion and things around that. But mm-hmm. it's the same for Lorraine's mother. Like, what would yes. what would be the escape here? There is not one. No, and I think what makes it extra rough is because this is first person written by John and Lorraine, like from their perspectives they don't have that capacity to understand like so we're really just getting this kind of raw unfiltered i hate this person they're trying to ruin me but they can't empathize and as a result it's also really hard for us even when we understand the driving motivations of why their parents are acting the way that they are it doesn't excuse them but i don't think john and lorraine even understand why their parents are reacting the way that they are there's no. such a, a generational divide. Well, and it feels so compounded by the fact that, like, there is this kind of, I guess, 1960s social divide between parents and children, too, in that they mm-hmm, don't talk mm-hmm. about anything serious, right? There's no space for, there's no space to question, and there's no space to kind of come together. So mm-hmm. they, they stay in their separate quarters. It's hard to read, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder now... I'm reflecting back on how I opened this conversation by saying that this feels like a classic text, you know, it just kind of oozes that vibe. And I (laughs) wonder if that's where, not my struggle, but where I had to adjust or acclimatize to the nature of the book is just, Mm -hmm. this feels like a bygone era where we didn't care about kids. We really just looked at them as future employees who were going to be able to contribute to the household. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it like it's that. rough because we're just like, where is your empathy? Like, where is your attempt to parent these children in a way that acknowledges that they have emotions and they need nurturing? Like, there's a reason that they respond so well to Mr. Pignati is because he's the only adult who cares about them. <laughs> this does make me wonder, like, in a sociological context, like not something we can answer today, but like, what came first? An awareness of the importance mm. of breaking down these family dynamics or kid lit that actually started to take a look at these more serious topics. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I wonder how much a movement into realist YA about troubled family structures mm-hmm. maybe helped us to make some moves. Not that every family, you know, right. <laughs> sorted these things out for sure. But I just, I wonder, right? Like, yeah, we think about the role of literature in society. I'm just... I'm always wondering, you know, another thing in tea books and chocolates comment is that she points out that she's not a realist YA person, right? That Mm -hmm, she likes fantasy mm -hmm. and sci-fi. And most YA books or most books for kids, you know, from this period. period. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like this movement into realism. I'm just very curious about the larger ramifications of a book like this being a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Like, did it help people see something wrong about the way their families were arranged or yeah or maybe it helped those kids have language to do something different with their own families and just mm-hmm. i don't know idle curiosity as we end the show today Joe. <laughs> oh absolutely and maybe uh we can end with brian's observation that this felt very similar to james dean's iconic text rebel without a cause which mm. is actually from the 50s but that film was instrumental in changing the way society started to view teenagers as like a troubled epidemic where it was like we need to do right by them because they are not adults but also we can't treat them as little kids anymore either so i i'm very curious i would love to hear from listeners who have any insight about like Mm -hmm. when does that start to change i mean we've had speculation about this in our episode where we actually tried to define what YA is and you you address the fact that teenagers weren't always recognized as such but i would love to hear if folks know of some other texts that kind of help to illustrate this or if they have other thoughts on that yeah i would love to hear that too cuz it's something that really fascinates me it's like you know somewhere along the way some levers shifted and we mm-hmm. decided to think about and talk about young people differently yeah and and we've seen that extend right like we we've seen what we consider sort of adolescence to be protracted over time mm-hmm. right and there's also obviously like you can't talk about the slack we cut young people without acknowledging that there's like there's huge racial frameworks around that right like who oh, gets yeah. to be young and who gets to be troubled and needing help as opposed to troubled and needing incarceration right yeah yeah <laughs> just ending it with a a giant (laughs) grenade drop there brenna i love it i love it just call me the paul zindel of podcasting (laughs) well with that in mind it's not as though we're going to move into any less controversial territory even though we're technically regressing and we're going to talk about a middle grade fiction book for our next band book club Yes, so I am really looking forward to this conversation, Joe. We're going to be reading Alex Gino's George, or you may see it more commonly referred to in 
circles these days as Melissa. And in fact, there is a publication either out now or coming soon that retitles this book Melissa. So this is a middle grade book about a trans character. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this one because this is number one on the banned book lists mm -hmm. all over the place for yep. obvious reasons, given the moral panic around gender these days. Ugh. And um, I'm excited to dig into this one with you. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation and I'm not looking forward to the larger conversation about where we as a society are seemingly regressing in terms of our acknowledgement of human rights and people's <sighs> authentic selves. And I'm going to try not to get real, real angry. Yeah, we're going to fail at that. <laughs> yeah, no, let, let's not promise not to get annoyed yeah, and frustrated say. and ragey. But uh, folks, if you are shopping ahead, so we're trying to do two books ahead in case people need to order them, our subsequent entry into banned books is going to be Go Ask Alice by Anonymous. Okay, now talk about a classic and yeah. seminal. I think we're not supposed to say seminal anymore, are we? It's the Winter Ovester. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important book. And it's probably kind of a trash fire so i'm excited to dig into it with you joe oh boy yeah uh -oh. we are keeping the hits around in i'm excited <laughs> but um we're not quite there yet so yeah folks if you want to contribute to our conversation about george or melissa by alex gino you have until april 19th but uh still a ways off and I think we should prep people, Brenna, because we've been teasing that uh, next week's book is quite long. So when we come back for our regular episode next week, we are going to be talking about Swedish vampires with a Let the Right One In. We're also talking about both movie adaptations, so the Swedish film and then the American remake, which is just called Let Me In. You have a lot to read and a lot to watch if you want to hang out with that episode, but I would recommend just watching one of the movies because, uh, well, we'll talk about why. <laughs> yeah, the book is messy and not always successful. It's also just excruciatingly long. So folks, uh, hopefully, <laughs> if you wanted to read along with us, you have gotten started. But Brenna, if folks wanted to give us their thoughts on any book clubs or just anything at all, how would they get in touch with us? So if you've got something long form, like you're writing in about uh, Alex Gino's George slash Melissa, um, you can find us at hkhspod at gmail.com. For shorter things, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, if they want to get in touch with you specifically to talk about, I don't know, daddy issues, where do they mm. find you? <laughs> I will uh, respond to being called daddy, yes, and I can be reached <laughs> at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. Ooh, that was a little bit uh, creeping in from the other podcast there. <clears throat> People love it. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to our next book club and yeah, to get a bit creepy with some Swedish vampires. So mm -hmm. until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. And, you know, it's interesting because um, in some way, sorry, let me do that without scrunching my sleeves at the same time.